Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Oh, welcome friends to the Ocean Protect podcast. This episode, as will be our next three, will be a bit different. So we were recently involved in the inaugural Ocean Plastic Action Forum at Bondi Beach, which was held on the 15th of March, 2023, as part of the Volvo Ocean Lovers Festival. And now this episode, as will be the next three, will feature recorded audio from this forum. So the forum included a whole bunch of cool cats, industry leaders, innovators, scientists, government and community leaders discussing how to turn the tide on plastic in our ocean including a few short presentations and interactive Q&A panel sessions. The speakers and panellists were almost a who's who in the battle against plastic pollution, and little old me was the forum MC. So we're going to break up the audio into four separate episodes, each to be released, as per usual, every fortnight. So this current episode will focus on the key trends and impact sessions, which included insights into the plastic pollution problem, including key sources, trends, and known and potential impacts of the plastic in our oceans. And this included a kickoff presentation by Dr. Denise Hardesty from CSIRO, and then she was joined by a panel, essentially. So that included Dr. Charlene Trestral from UTS, Dr. Michelle Blewett from Ozmap, Pete Galinsky from Seabin, Graham Lloyd from Sea Shepherd Australia, and Murray Powell from Optimal Stormwater. And they got together for an interactive panel discussion and Q&A with the audience. The second of the episodes features the Exploring Current Action session, where you will hear discussions insights from current actions being undertaken to reduce ocean plastic pollution, and that includes at-source methods, recycling treatment, and cleanup initiatives. Professor Veena Sahajwala from the University of New South Wales provides a, a short presentation to kick off that session, and then she's joined by Anissa Lawrence from Ghost Nets Australia, Shannon Mead from No More Butts, Lottie DL from Banish, Hayley Tate from Tangaroo Blue, and James uh, Dorney from Tomra Cleanaway, and also Mayor. Paula Masalos from Waverley Council for the panel session in audience Q&A. The third episode will be the Path to Purging Plastic session, where we discuss potential future innovations and actions to help turn the tide on plastic pollution in our oceans. So Allegra Spender MP, so from the Federal Parliament of Australia, this kicks off with a short presentation and then she's joined for a panel session with Marjorie O'Neill MP from New South Wales Parliament, Mike Smith from Xeroco, Dr. Julia Razor from ULUU and Paul Riley from Samsara Eco, again for a panel session and uh, interactive discussion with the audience, which is great. The fourth episode will feature a where to from here session, the fourth and final session of the forum where the speakers of the previous sessions, which was Denise Hardesty, Venus Arjwala and Allegra Spender, each get up and do a short presentation, giving their sort of like synthesis of the previous discussions and highlight key essential actions from their perspective that we need to do to turn the tide on ocean plastic pollution. 
You'll also hear a couple of short presentations from Paul Riley, the CEO of Samsara, and yours truly will come by and drop some ocean plastic truth bombs, as I always like to do. So look, and after the force that session, I'm hoping to have Anita Colony and, and Kaz Grant, the founders of the Ocean Lovers Festival, on for a bit of a discussion as to where to from here for the forum and festival. So look, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to bring you the audio from the forum kickoff and key trends and impact session recorded as part of the Ocean Plastic Action Forum on 15th of March, 2023 at Bondi. Boom, boom, shake the room. Hey, thanks so much for coming along today. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Bidjigal, Birribarrigal and the Gadigal people who are traditionally occupied the Sydney coast and the uh, ocean. And I certainly pay my respects to elders past and present, and I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders here today. And certainly the, the traditional peoples have seen some dramatic change in this area and beyond over their tenure. And, but certainly in more recent times, there's been some dramatic changes, particularly in relation to the amount of plastic in our oceans. And certainly our, our understanding of that plastic pollution crisis is becoming uh, greater every day. And only last week, I think it was in the um, a study led by the Five Guys Institute published in the Public Library of Science. And this is only seven days ago, claims there are now more than 170 trillion microplastics in our oceans, something that they describe as a plastic smog in our oceans. And look, it's easy to become despondent and depressed about the state of our oceans and the amount of plastic uh, that's in them. And you've probably all heard the statistics and maybe even some of you have encountered the wildlife that's often impacted by this, that plastic. And I know for a fact a lot of you guys have. But perhaps more than ever, we need to be stubbornly optimistic. 2,500 years ago, a guy called Siddhartha Gautama, who became known as Buddha, uh, certainly knew a, a thing or two about optimism. And he said... Uh, a bright mind might be the final goal of enlightenment, but it's also the first step. Without a bright mind, you cannot proceed, you cannot make progress. And certainly we need the brightest minds to help address uh, this plastic pollution crisis, to better understand the problem, the key pressures, and the solutions that we need to implement to address this issue. And certainly, as I look being blinded by the light uh, across the faces today. I feel almost imposter syndrome of all the incredible bright minds that are in this uh, room today. And it's certainly almost like a who's who of solving the plastic pollution crisis of our planet, which is fantastic. And look, that's why we're here today, actually, to try and better understand the issue, the problems, the pressures, and drive real change. Kaz, Anita, and Sharon, and I spoke about this event maybe a few months, six months ago, I think, and to see it all come together today, it's really amazing. And I mentioned Anita, and I'd like to bring uh, Anita Colney to the stage, the Ocean Lovers Festival co-founder. So thank you, Anita. Thank you all for coming today to launch the start of the 2023 Volvo Ocean Lovers Festival with our inaugural Ocean Plastic Action Forum. I'd also like to acknowledge the Bidjigal and Gadigal people on whose land we meet today and pay my respects to elders both past and present. I'm so excited about the incredible minds, and like Brad said, I feel in awe of so many of the people that are in this room today and the incredible things that you're all doing to make such a difference. But before we get started today with the incredible lineup of speakers, I'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Ocean Protect, Samsara Eco, Mindaroo, our host Waverley Council and partners, The Hidden Sea and Stone and Wood for making today happen. If you haven't already signed up, 
to become an ocean lover, which I'm sure many of you have, make sure you do. And our friends at the Hidden Sea will make you ocean plastic neutral for the next 12 months. I was just having a chat to one of our panelists today and saying how important it is for all the work that you're doing in this room. And part of the purpose and the reason that we started the festival was because we didn't see enough opportunities for the community to connect with all these amazing ideas and incredible technology people and heroes and ocean champions. And I will now hand you back to Brad to get the day started. What a superstar, Anita Colony. Thanks, Anita. The first session is about understanding the, the current situation with plastic and the current trends. It gives me a real pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Denise Hardesty is a senior principal research scientist at CSIRO's Environment Business Unit and is a globally recognized scientist focusing on plastic pollution. Her resume is longer. That's long enough. And, and she always wants my T-shirts as well, by the way. So, Denise Hardesty. Wow. It is really bright up here. I'm thrilled to be here and thank you, Brad, as always, for the introduction. I haven't stolen his white t-shirt yet, but <laughs> I did just spend four days hiking the South Cape track in, uh, or the Three Capes Walk in Tasmania, where I was proud to wear an Ocean Protect shirt. So when I think about where we are, Brad talked about people often feel really overwhelmed and disillusioned and everything. I am an eternal optimist. And when I see the change in interest, in actions, in governments coming together with a new UNEA resolution 5.2, where countries around the world are committed to putting forth a, a binding resolution addressing the whole of life cycle of plastics, I find that actually really heartening. Yes, I've been working in the topic for the last 15 years, and I have seen a tremendous shift in the amount of interest and energy in the topic and what is actually being done. At the same time, we are making exponentially more plastic each day, each week, each month, each year. And yes, we need to engage in a number of different actions and activities. And you'll hear from some, from pa some fantastic panelists today about actions and activities that they are undertaking about companies and organizations about focusing on different areas of the life cycle of plastics from how we produce it, how it's manufactured, how it moves through the supply chain what products we make and how we interact with and relate to plastics. Within Australia, however, we've actually been doing a pretty good job. So science has shown that over the course of six years, we've seen an up to nearly 30% decrease in the amount of plastic littered on Australia's coastline. And instead of just looking at those numbers, we're actually trying to unpack what's behind that, what's driving the change in the way that people are behaving. Yes, Marcus Erickson from Five Gyres and colleagues have estimated that now there's 170 trillion pieces of plastics floating in the global ocean. Around 92% of what ends up in our ocean ends up on our shores which means that products such as seabin and coastal cleanups actually are effective in removing that waste from getting in the environment. We certainly don't want to keep doing that. We don't want a world where we're engaging in cleanups all the time, but we are starting to see some shifts in people's behavior and government's choices and decisions. And I think there's a real opportunity for change. So when we think about what's happening today, and looking at solutions, it's never going to be one thing. I think it is fundamentally important that we start to put a price on plastics, that we treat it as a commodity, 
treat it as something with value, that will shift our relationship with these myriad products that comprise the plastics that we all use in our everyday lives. But I think there's a real opportunity and bringing the public's attention, having that engagement, looking at not just new materials. I would really urge us to be mindful of some of the technologies and approaches of just looking for new materials because we don't have the infrastructure and resources to manage with some of those uh, new materials. But I think that there are many opportunities to bring people together. And I'm looking forward to being on this panel today and to listening to many others, to engaging with all of you so that we can together look at and address and start to unpack some of the challenges and questions that we're all here to focus on. So thank you so much. Awesome. No trouble. Uh, look, and, and, and you're not going anywhere, Denise, because you're joining the panel session. And I'd like to actually like to ask the other uh, panelists for this first session on the stage. And I'll introduce you. So it's Dr. Charlene Trestrail, who's a postdoctoral researcher from University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, Murray Powell. Yeah, what? why not? Murray Powell, General Manager of Optimal Stormwater. Dr. Michelle Blewett, the uh, General Manager, uh, sorry, CEO of uh, OzMap. Uh, and Pete Galinsky, uh, CEO and co-founder of Seabin Project. And last but not least, uh, the legendary Graham Lloyd from Sea Shepherd Australia. And look, I can kick off proceedings by asking some hard questions of each of you guys, but if you've got a question that you'd like to ask, please put your hand up. But I'm probably going to ask, actually, we talked, I might kick things off with Charlene, if that's okay. So a lot of people talk about plastic pollution and they get annoyed with it and they see it on their beach walks, et cetera. Is there more to plastic than meets the eye? I think there is. And we've touched on it already mm. with some of the things you've introduced and with Denise's introductory presentation. So I think a lot of people are just starting to realize that um, large plastic items are really just the beginning of the ocean plastic problem. So I think it's very easy for us to look at one piece of plastic, say a plastic spoon, and think of it as just one piece of pollution. But every piece of plastic has the potential to fragment into microplastics that we touched on earlier. And so one plastic spoon could potentially become many, many more microplastics. And these are, these are tiny. Sometimes you'll see them washed up on the beach, especially if they're colored. They're quite small. They can be the size of a lentil, but they can also be too small to see without a microscope. And so those microplastics have just as big an effect on ocean animals as large plastic items because they're eaten by small animals like mussels and oysters and shrimp. So plastic pollution is bigger than just what washes up and easily seen on the beach. Mm. It's smaller than that, but just as harmful. And speaking of microplastics, I, I can see you sitting next to a lovely Michelle Blewett. You, OzMap is obviously doing a whole bunch of microplastic analyses around Australia. What are, what are you finding? What have you found so far? Hi, everyone. Um, so OzMap, for those that don't know, is the Australian Microplastic Assessment Project. Uh, we're a project out of a non-for-profit charity based here in Sydney called the Total Environment Centre. And so we created this program, OzMap, uh, coming up to five years ago, uh, which is a citizen science program that maps microplastic on our shorelines. So, so far we have close to 500 samples from shorelines all over the country. We collect um, what's uh, been brought in the last high tide line as a 
opposed to being what's accumulated over time. And uh, we look at any shoreline, doesn't matter whether it's an ocean, it can be a lake, an estuary, uh, inland, uh, Lake Burley Griffin. Dr. Scott Wilson's here, my research director. And so we've found that on any shoreline that we have. And so we find, we try and locate where these hotspots are so then we can then work back up the catchment to figure out where it's coming from and how to stop it. And that's where the program's developed a lot in the last five years. So it's become really exciting. Thank you, Michelle. I'm going to change tack and talk about some of Graham's and, and Sea Shepherd's incredible work in remote communities. So obviously we might be familiar with Bondi and some of our local parks and waterways, but what are you finding when you're doing these cleanups in these remote communities? What, what's the impact on those communities and how do you even do anything about it? Yeah, what we're seeing is the impact that it has on people. So not only physical, but also on their mental health. You know, it's a real concern in these remote communities. Timmy Barawanga, who's a general manager for Dimaru Aboriginal Corporation, he describes this plastic as like a virus. It's coming to kill the animals and kill the nature. You know, it's affecting their hunting, all their traditional hunting. It's affecting the way they interact with the land. They're connected to the land. So it really hurts them deeply. Um, we also, uh, at our cleanup on Anandili Arquar in the Groot Archipelago, I was speaking to Kirsten, who's the ranger coordinator at Umbacumba, and she said that it affects the traditional owner rangers and herself, that where they're physically driving down the beach, it, it hurts them. You know, they can feel it as they go there. They're sad. It's it's a hopeless feelingness of hopelessness, makes them feel sad. They just don't know what to do. You know, with the Yungle people um, in uh, back on Julpan, they've been looking after this country for seventy thousand years. They've got stories, their storylines. They have no story about plastics. They don't know what they're handing to their children. You know, it's been passed on through father to son through all this time, their connection to country. And now all they see is this plastic on the beach. And they think, what are we leaving for these, for our children? You know, where is this plastic coming from? They don't understand where it's coming from. They speak to government and say, can we make changes? Where is it coming from? No one can tell them where it's coming from. And because it's not on Bondi Beach, you know, we're at Bondi this morning, it's beautiful out there. But because it's not on Bondi Beach, they feel alone. They just want people to help, you know. So that that's where Sea Shepherd, we're a direct action organisation. We're out there, you know, fighting this fight. We're on the ground doing this and we're out there trying to help these communities and it means the world to them when we turn up and we're able to, you know, help them with this issue and try and highlight it by spreading and working with people like yourselves and through education to teach people about the problems that remote communities face. Mm, yeah, thanks, Graham. A little bit closer to home, I can, if I can shift it to Pete. I think everyone in this room knows what a sea bin uh, does and what it looks like and uh, and how it is effective at removing that plastic pollution. But you guys are looking to pivot that business model, aren't you? Leading with data. Can you tell us what that looks like and, and the data that you've collected so far, what are you finding? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so... Through personal and professional development and a lot of chats with uh, John Lavrak and his team, uh, we realized that cleanup, you know, is great, but it's, uh, you know, you need to go past that to prevention. Shouldn't have it in the water, shouldn't have the problem in the first place. The symptom of the problem is plastic and the problem is humans. We put the rubbish bin in the water, we we're cleaning up, we thought that was great. We didn't realize that we we're creating this data 
we're filling a data gap. It's a global data gap. There is data on microplastics out there, but what we found was that we're doing it 24-7, five days a week, seven days a week. And so the accuracy, consistency, and the methodology that we've been trying to dial it in is now what's leading our business model. Mm. Uh, so we, the byproduct of what we do now is clean up. We've cleaned up, uh, we've captured over 100 tonnes of microplastics, marine litter, plastic fibres from the harbour since July 2020, filtered 14 billion litres of water. We've engaged with 27,850 people in real life, having conversations, meaningful stuff and mapping it. But it's the data that drives legislation, the data that informs uh, the public, it's the data that creates new policies. And so if you if you drop $336 million on an initiative to combat plastics or repair the natural marine estate, you know, what's the indicator and how do you monitor that? And how, how is it measured? So this is what we've literally fallen into and I'm kind of shitting my pants because I don't know anything about data. Uh, you know. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, there's a few people in this room that might be able to help you. Yeah. And that's the one of the best things about this whole event is just that, that spirit of collaboration, you know, with so many individuals working on the same problem in parallel to each other. And I've already seen collaborative relationships formed already, which I won't, I won't steal Dean asunder, but um, yeah, but moving a little bit further upstream, and this could go anywhere because I know Murray can talk all day about um, storm treatment assets. Um, but a lot of people wouldn't really understand the issue of the connection between stormwater runoff and plastic pollution. Can you maybe just give people a very quick yeah. <laughs> insight into stormwater, but also these the gross pollutant traps uh, and how these assets are being installed and, and potentially maintained as well? Do yeah, they? how do I summarise 30 years yeah. of experience? <laughs> Stormwater is the conveyance mechanism to take plastics from Blacktown, Canterbury, City of Sydney, etc., straight into our harbours and our waterways. It'd be great if I was completely out of business because we didn't need gross pollutant traps. That'd be wonderful, but that's not going to happen. The education and preventative strategies are fantastic, uh, and we need to. It, it's not a silver bullet. GPTs aren't the answer to everything, but they're part of the the comprehensive solution. We need to try and minimise things, um, but. If you can't minimise, well, you can minimise uh, the amount of plastic getting into our systems through education and through source controls and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know how many millions or billions of tonnes of pollution has been pulled out by the thousands upon thousands of gross pollutant traps and stuff that are protecting our waterways. That's one of the reasons why there has been a decline. Councils have, have committed to actually putting these things in and more recently, committed to actually maintaining them, which is a fantastic leap forward. Um, I have the honour of being the key author of the government guidelines for the maintenance of stormwater treatment measures. And one of the big failures in the past, councils have been getting grant funding, putting these devices in, but not understanding how to maintain them and the frequency of maintenance required and the financial commitment to, uh, to get them working. Through my company, we also audit these things and make sure they are working. And if not, why not? And what do we need to do to fix them? So... Whilst gross pollutant traps aren't the be-all and end-all, they're definitely part of the solution. And, um, uh, you know, nearby areas, et cetera, uh, Ramick and City of Sydney have certainly uh, got a ton of devices in. Uh, they've audited them. They're maintaining them. They're getting some fantastic outcomes. So very proud of, of working with those guys and what they're able to achieve. Yeah, and very happy to be here today. Thanks. Good work, right? Uh, Murray, well. <laughs> and as always, Murray wears the best shirts in the stormwater just for everyone's benefit. Then look... Always a fish-themed shirt when I'm around. Would anyone in the audience like to ask a question? Yeah, I see a hand up at the front. Well done. First in, best dressed. 
I see plastic, you know, it is kind of a resource that can be like it's made such amazing things already. We used to think it was amazing, plastic, fantastic. So is there any forms that we can like, I guess, recycle plastic that it's something that's really amazing again or something that's actually useful because I can imagine that all this plastic that we're collecting then what do we do with it we put it in landfill and then you know again it's like caring about the earth as well that's then you know going to the soil and the soil can just again run off into the water so the question is how can we better is there any new information about better recycling plastic? Last week, Tanya Plebisic announced there's like something like $60 billion to be invested into waste recovery, recycling, sorting systems, uh, which is great. Unfortunately, at the moment, with 100 tonnes of marine litter and microplastics and stuff that we've captured, it's all gone into the red bins. It's either been incinerated or uh, landfill. And that's just the hard truth of it because we don't have any commercial sorting recycling system for mixed up microplastics where you have, might have 13 or 14 variations of plastic ppe abs you know nylon six and how do you sort it from inorganic to organic so the waste service you know sorting industry is multi-billion dollar industry and i see there's huge opportunity for established players to start looking at this so the harsh reality is what we do is uh, landfill or incineration. I might just add to that as well. So in many countries around the world, there's a tremendous amount that's done. We are a very, 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 very wealthy country here. And so um, labor costs are quite high. We have a tremendous amount of infrastructure. Proportionately compared to other parts of the world, we have less waste making its way out into the environment. We still have plenty, don't get me wrong, and more than enough. There are sunglasses, there are skateboards, there are pieces of art, there are plastic pallets, there are park benches, there are numerous different products that are niche products that have been developed to capitalize on the increased interest in the fact that people are willing to pay for recycled plastic products now in our very privileged worlds, right? We are all in this room very privileged. We are all here by definition. So as many people in the world that are creative, we are seeing increasing new niche solutions. But in terms of broad scale, broad applicability, there are and there remain some challenges. So you're seeing some options and solutions out here today. You know, we have groups in Kenya that are turning beach washed thongs into products that people purchase that they keep for a long time. So, you know, there are lots and lots of different markets. We also have a book coming out soon that's about um, solutions from different countries around the world, like talking to the grassroots on the ground partners in countries around the world that are creating new products that and looking at how do you scale that because it's great to have a very small niche product or opportunity or ghost nets into artwork and those sorts of amazing enterprises in Australia. But what's happening in other countries that can be scaled and scalable? And then how do we have the innovative financing that's required to support those industries. I think if we want to look at many of those solutions, we need to look broader than beyond our shores here within Australia. But there are hundreds or now thousands of new niche markets that are developing at the same time. <laughs> 
as has been highlighted, recycling does not tend to be a viable business proposition in many developed countries. And the informal recycling sector takes care of a heck of a lot of what's going on. And we do turn things into other products because of necessity. Thanks, and that Nate. was too long. <laughs> I'm so You're sad. not in trouble. Don't worry. And thanks, Nate, Pete and Denise, for that. Got another question. My question is related to the same thing around um, recycling of, of plastic and the products that we can create at scale. And one of those products that we're seeing a lot of, especially with the big brands at the moment, is clothing. Are we concerned with the microplastics associated with clothing, especially as it goes through a wash cycle, and also the, the fast fashion nature of clothing? Is, is it a scalable product that we all want, want to be supporting? Can I jump in? Sure, please do, yeah. Charlene. So that's a really interesting question. So all plastic-based <coughs> materials, and I'm actually wearing one right now, release microplastics in your wash cycle. And we know this is a big problem and we know it's a big source of microplastics into the environment. Whether that's made from virgin microplastics or recycled microplastics almost doesn't matter because just by its very nature, it's releasing those microfibers. I think the reality is there are so many people on the planet now, we can't all have natural fibre clothing. Wool and cotton and natural fibres take up a lot of resources and are outside the price range of many consumers. So I think plastic-based textiles are more affordable and durable to a certain extent, and I think they are the only option for a lot of people on the planet. So I don't think it's an issue to support plastic-based textiles, but I think there's a lot of work that we still need to do to work out what kind of infrastructure can we put on household washing machines to try and catch these microplastics before they go down through the wastewater system. And if you have an old washer, in the 70s and before, we had filters in washing machines. So I call it when old school becomes cool because we're going back to a lot of the things that we used to have and they are imperfect, but they are better than not. And people are not looking at um, what's the effect of wool and cotton fibers on wildlife and things like that. So those are also questions we want to ask because those don't belong out there in the ocean either. I support it. I'm really aware of the impact, but I'm also aware of the impact if I bought a pair of board shorts from Billabong that was virgin plastic, or if I bought a pair of board shorts from Project Blank that used to be water bottles, and I know they've been recycled, turned into a new product, I still want my board shorts, there's like the whole bunch of reasons why you choose that material. Nothing's ever perfect, there's always, I don't know, like what are you going to do with the plastic that's out there, whether it's a product that sheds microplastics or then it turns into a disused something that goes to landfill there's always impact but celebrating you know small achievements big achievements recycling it's also a mindset and then how do you compare your impact to organic hemp or organic cotton or everything's got an impact and uh but i believe the the mission behind the the brands that are recycling is the most powerful item that they have Another question? Yeah. Ludovico Fabiano, Waverley Councillor. My question is, um, when we shop at the, uh, as an individual, we go shopping, for example, uh, fruit markets, and we tend to use uh, the mushroom paper bags to put a fruit in and things like that. So hopefully the fruitologists get the idea that we want to use paper instead of plastic. From your point of view, because you're talking about recycling, uh, putting work into it and spending billions of dollars, do you think the government should have policies in place 
to control or manage at source from the industries mm. to give them the responsibility to ensure we don't contaminate our water sources. As I sort of mentioned too earlier, it's a combination of education of our young generation. It's providing uh, alternatives to plastic bags. Um, the other day I went and got some takeaway Chinese and it, everything came in its own individual plastic bag that said reusable. What have we achieved by uh, now writing reusable on our plastic bags? I don't know if it's very much, but it's all steps in the right direction. I would definitely encourage you to uh, go down the path of, you know, if we can swap plastic for paper, fantastic, because paper will biologically break down to virtually nothing. Let me just throw a cat amongst the pigeons for a sec. Brad loves it when I do that. The way I see it, my first degree is in chemical engineering, and you've got three options for your, your plastics. One is recycling. One is bury them deep in a leachate-controlled landfill. And the other is turn a hydrocarbon into energy. And it's waste to energy. Let's burn them in a controlled situation and generate energy. Um, so you're basically using them as a fuel. So if you've got 27 different types of plastics and you can't separate them, you can burn them all together. As long as we're productively burning it for, we're here looking at water sustainability and protection of the environment, but energy obviously comes onto the radar. And this may be a source for future energy. But I always put my mushrooms in a, in a brown paper bag and I completely support that. I don't know if we can ever push the entire market to go down that path and not give them options of plastic, but I think the path we're heading on at the moment is a good one. There's incremental change happening right across the board, uh, certainly in my area. One of the things that I've been involved in is uh, guidelines for the maintenance of stormwater treatment measures and now lots of councils who own all these stormwater treatment solutions are getting better educated about how to operate and maintain their devices and you know doubling the performance of the existing asset. So it's all incrementally heading in the right direction and uh, source control and prevention is, is certainly a big part of it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Just got another question from Heidi. Thanks, Brad. Um, Heidi Tate from Tangaroa Blue. So I have a question for Michelle, but I just want to make a comment about the fabrics. If we're going to invest in recycling what we have out there, because we need to do something else with it, we need to be also investing in solutions that prevent that creating more harm. So we know that plastic fabrics will release microplastics in the washing machine. So let's fix the washing machines. And then we start to see that solution. We can't do them independently of each other. And, and this is what's causing us great concern about not fit for purpose products that are actually causing more harm than good. And we're not doing the research and the due diligence prior. So Michelle, from uh, OzMap and, and the microplastic surveys that you've done, we know that there's a number of products that are made from recycled product that are now releasing microplastics 
back into the environment. Can you talk a little bit about that to show that some of these solutions are actually creating more harm? Yes, of course, Heidi. Thank you. Yeah, so that's correct um, and goes back to a number of the questions that have been asked. I work a lot in South Australia. I'm based in South Australia. We have a facility over there that uses and takes 60,000 tonnes of mixed plastic recycled material and repurposes it back into pellets that are then used to create other products which is fantastic because you're taking 60,000 tonnes and he's leading up to 100,000 tonnes coming up this year to repurpose that into plastic products. As I said, it's great that we're taking that out of the, the waste stream. However, as a result of this, there's also an awful lot of loss. This company estimates around 20% uh, of loss each year, and a lot of that is going straight down the stormwater drains through mismanagement of the products within their facility. Now, that is a known problem and a known issue, and there's no currently nothing being enforced from that. So it is great that we're not then reusing virgin plastics to create these products, but we have to be really careful about how we're reusing that mixed plastic resource recycling uh, and what purposes that is for and also the mismanagement of those plastics as well. We have to be very much aware of that and this is one facility in one small state uh, so we're not you know aware and then so this is where with Haiti uh, with Operation Clean Sweep that's leading on to uh, which is going to be rolled out certainly here in New South Wales and hopefully coming up the rest of Australia, being national programs and we walk, work all over the country. Uh, and so that's working within the industries to on an inside out point of view to be able to, to educate them because this facility I work with in, in South Australia, they weren't aware of the issues. The release of this and through stormwater looking up catchment or down catchment into these wetlands where we've got loads down there in the wetlands of over a quarter of a million pieces of microplastics in, in a square metre. And we're talking about whole wetlands. And my response by the government was, well, they're constructed wetlands. They're doing what they should do. I'm like, seriously, what kind of attitude is that by a government official to be able to say, well, they're doing what they have to do. They're, they're capturing this stuff. And it's like, but it's still an ecosystem. It's still a habitat. And there's still the potential uh, impact into the animals that live there, migratory species, et cetera, from that. And so we need to work within the facilities to be able to educate them on their loss and what their loss means to the environment as well. And we have done, uh, you know, working with Haiti and Reef Clean, uh, particularly up around Queensland, being able to look at microplastics across a lot of these remote areas and that as well. And bollards and, and fence lines that are made by repurposed plastic, which is fantastic. Again, it's taking it out of the waste stream. But in these UV settings, the wind, the, the abrasion is causing a tremendous amount of microplastics that's being released back into the environment as well. When we're looking at repurposing tires, we don't even want to go down that track but because that's a whole nother kettle of fish. That's the next environmental nightmare that we're facing. Again, with, with Haiti and Reef Clean, we've designed a project that we're able to assess the loss of rubber crumb from playgrounds alone, up to sort of four metres away from these playgrounds. And we've estimated over 1.2 million pieces are being released within four metres of these playgrounds. Uh, and we're doing a study now. We're in the final throes of, of writing this up as a publication. And this is happening everywhere. Uh, and so just as a point, if you find any areas that you do have rubber crumb loss, please let us know. We'd love to investigate that further. And this is a scientific program that we can quantify this uh, to be able to use then for policy and enforcement and regulation. Thank you. She was that tyre industry uh, needs to be held account. I think I think it was Goodyear that came up with the idea of tyre reefs, yeah. uh, which weren't, weren't a good idea. But another question. I'm Max from Smart Centre at UNSW. Just another question for Michelle. So 
one of the biggest issues with microplastic research is sampling because obviously it's everywhere in the ocean and you can't sample from everywhere in the ocean. So naturally you end up sampling from places near the beach or in estuaries or, or the like. In taking a citizen science approach or in taking a less formal approach or casting a wider net, have you been surprised or been confronted with any data that is contrary to what has been seen in larger studies globally? And where's that shaping your research forward? Yeah, good question. I don't like to say not as formally. As a scientist, our citizen science project is scientifically rigorous and we've trialled and tested that across the country. And I, I won't compare our country to that of other countries because our issues are very much different and far less than many other countries, as Denise has pointed out. You know, citizen science, as a scientist, we can't be everywhere. Uh, and so by our program, we train officially and accredit people to be able to recognise a microplastic uh, and to use our scientific program so that we know that the data that we're collecting is scientifically rigorous. Uh, so that allows us to go to far more reaches. And our program's not just about recognising where there's hotspots. That's amazing because then we can track back. Uh, but it's also recognising where there's areas of low loads. For South Australia, for example, I went there five years, four years ago now to be told we've got very few microplastic, we don't have a microplastic problem in South Australia. And I was like, great, my job's going to be easy over here. Uh, but they were only sh sampling shorelines. Um, beaches and our beaches are really clean. Many beaches off Sydney are relatively clean to some degree. But as soon as you increase that urbanisation and then go inland through the catchment areas where that stormwater flows down onto our shorelines, whether it's a lake, an estuary, you name it, Sydney Harbour, uh, where you can get a shoreline, that's where you find the huge loads of microplastics. And so then when we find those hotspots, uh, that's what then enables us to be able to track back up potentially that catchment to figure out where it's coming from and work then at the source to be able to, to to reduce it and, and a, a fine effective mitigation strategies. Another question. I'm Adrian from City of Sydney Council. I think we've taken a big step backwards at one point when the recycling uh, system broke down, particularly with the yellow bins. I was surprised to find out that we were actually transporting a lot of the plastics we were putting in those bins to China for, to be recycled over there. And then they decided they're not going to accept them anymore. And apparently we don't have the infrastructure here in Australia to recycle most of those plastics. I've, an example, at the moment, I, I, I'm still putting the recyclables in there in the hope that it'll at least be more better managed than if it went in the red bin. But for things like uh, the plastic bags that uh, bread comes in, for example, I understand they're all just being stored at the moment in the hope that they one day will find a way to recycle it here and locally. Um, that that would, particular type of plastic was always very hard to recycle. I'm a big supporter of, of setting up the infrastructure to make uh, an engineered solution. And I think that if you're relying on people to do it, it's going to be a breakdown. So I'd like to hear if there's been any developments in resolving that issue. And if there haven't, What's the big barrier that's stopping us from, from resolving that? Basically, the, uh, the infrastructure issue that's stopping us from actually doing recycling the plastics that we're putting in the yellow bins. There's going to be a lot of focus, on, probably more focus on recycling on the next uh, session. But if you want to have a crack, you're welcome to. I, I can't answer that question, but I'll give you a cool, well, sort of cool <laughs> insight. It's pretty uh, scary, actually. We're catching 1,100 soft plastics every single day in Sydney Harbour. Red cycle, obviously everyone knows that stopped. So we don't know if 1100 soft plastics is going to increase over time because of red cycle or not. 
um, or if it plateaus or we don't know what the effect is, but what we do know is that with our methodologies and the, the hardware in the water, the scientists that we employ, people up here on stage, there's going to be information to start monitoring that and how do we fix it using the data uh, legislation and policies. But um, yeah, I can't answer your actual question. I'm not smart enough for that one. But the insights, yeah, 1,100 soft plastics a day currently. Paul Goodman, this might sound like a naive question. What is the problem with microplastics? Are they carcinogenic? Uh, I think Charlene might well, be best. Do you want to, yeah. They do a range of things. So to start with, um, we're all very familiar that uh, large marine animals like whales or turtles have a tendency to eat large plastic items. And we've all seen those pictures of dead seabirds washing up and they've got bellies full yeah. of big plastic. Awesome. The same thing is happening with microplastics and smaller animals. So smaller animals and a whole range of them, by the way, not just one or two, seem to get a signal from a microplastic that this is a real food item and they're eating that plastic. Now, for large plastics, they tend to go through the digestive system and for the most part are defecated out the other end. But they have a range of effects as they pass through the system. So they can interfere with the production of digestive enzymes in the stomach, and that might have flow-on effects for how an animal can digest food. And the um, other thing they can do in the intestines is many microplastics are sharp-edged because they've fragmented off larger pieces of plastic. As a sharp-edged microplastic goes through the intestines, it can actually grate on the inside of the intestines, causing damage and inflammation. A paper that came out, I think, two weeks ago from the Adrift Lab down in Hobart found the same thing happening in seabirds. And they've called this, they've, they've said this is a disease and they've called it plasticosis. It got a lot of media attention because as humans, we connect more with seabirds. But it's important to realize that this same tissue damage is happening in oysters and shrimp and crabs and all of those small marine animals that we usually overlook but that are crucial for doing really important ecosystem services like cycling nutrients or providing food. So microplastics, when they're relatively large, can be pooped out the other end but just because an animal is alive doesn't mean it's healthy. So we see a, a lot of what we call sublethal effects. Usually how we define it is five millimeters and down. Now that's a bit of a, the name doesn't quite match up because at five millimeters, you can see it without a microscope. Um, but we typically say that anything five millimeters and below is a microplastic. When it gets below one micron, we then start to call them nanoplastics. So microplastics can be relatively large, yes. The other impact of microplastics is an economical impact. So you can either care about the polar bears and ice caps and there's not enough people that care because we still have the problem or you can address it from a financial point of view, which people have salaries, mortgages and financial in our lives. And so tourism is the first one that will be affected. Plastic producing, manufacturing, salaries, mortgages, product lines, company audits, reviews, restructures. Seafood industry, if we know that plastics are in the fish, who's going to eat fish? Health, that's the last one of the last ones that we don't know what the implications are yet. But the financial 
impact of microplastics is unknown, but it's going to be substantial. I think that's a really good point that there's the environmental impacts, but then there's also a whole range of socioeconomic impacts as well. Yeah. So I'm going to have to chime in here. <laughs> so most of the fish that we eat, we do not eat the whole fish unless you're eating anchovies or very small fish, at least in this country. So most of the plastics that fish would be eating, we would remove, we would excise when we take out their digestive tracts. Yes, there are plastics that are small enough to transfer through cell wall, like through tissues and those sorts of things. However, if I was concerned about eating fish, my number one or number 10 concern would not be plastics or microplastics. Plastics are just small plastics in them. I would be much more concerned about other environmental contaminants in my fish personally. Yes, some animals and some vertebrates do pass larger plastics and they're, it's much easier for them to pass the smaller or the microplastics than it is to pass the larger or the non-microplastics by definition of size. Many organisms have also evolved to eject or to dispel indigestible matter, such as most or many species of seabirds, as well as many tunicates and sessile organisms. Um, we also don't have studies that evaluate some of the other material that we don't want animals eating. But I think there is also an increased focus on microplastics, which is just, it's a size definition as you've highlighted. And so some of them we can see, some of them we can't. But I think we should be mindful of focusing solely on macro or meso or micro or nano. You know, the point is we don't want this material out there in the environment where it doesn't belong. And you're right, absolutely. Like, if you don't care about the environment, it's still a relevant topic for you because you can meet somebody wherever they are. If their focus is on business or economics or environment or beauty or aesthetics, it is a relevant issue because it does have costs and consequences for people, for communities, for wildlife, for ecosystems. So no matter where you are, we can there's a place to talk to no matter of your views on these things. Speaking of microplastics and other potential water contaminants, Scott Wilson from the Earth Watch Institute. Expert, please uh, ask a question. Uh, it's more a comment, actually. Right. Uh, I'm also with OSMAP. So. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, it was more the question the gentleman asked around the soft plastics. Uh, so the, the government has announced uh, there's that stockpile that Woolworths and Coles had. It's going to be able to be shipped overseas as a one-off and dealt with overseas. So that'll get rid of the stockpile but there's still the ongoing issue of the collection process. And I know there's some industries working, and we might hear about it later today, around pyrolysis. And uh, you mentioned about uh, plastics for energy, but uh, plastics for oil will be another thing going forward. Cool. Thank you. I've seen a whole bunch of hands go up, and I think Jeremy was first in line. Some like Jeremy Brown. Thanks, Brett. Uh, Jeremy from Ocean Protect. It's... Um Great to have you guys all up there. And, and uh, Pete, I uh, just want to say a big thank you, mate. You've really produced a product, but but not only that, you've you've made people listen to the story of where pollution comes from. Murray, myself, Brad, we've been in the stormwater industry for, for donkey's years, trying to get people to explain how it all works. You produce a simple product and get global recognition for it. So, mate, hats off to you. I guess my question is around the data that you are collecting. Murray, Brad, myself, we've got data. And we, we, we tell politicians all the time, we show them all the time, data, 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 and nothing happens. 
So I guess the question is for the panel up there, how are we going to work together to make change? I mean, Denise, how many times have we sat there and looked at data and we go and talk to politicians and sorry to anyone from local government here, but nothing really happens. So how are we going to work together to make change? Can I start and then sure. we can build on that? So actually, the federal government of Australia has now invested in wanting to have a shared data portal and a shared resource for those who want to contribute their data so that it can be used in support of decision making. And it's a complete opt-in model. At the same time, the same federal government is supporting now for the first time um, a look into the role in what we know about stormwater. Um, and so we at CSIRO are involved in that and we're actually working with and reaching out to stormwater industry to you experts around that topic. You know, we have some of the fantastic people on this panel and others in the room and beyond have also said, yes, we want to play in this space. Let's collaborate. Let's share information, whether it's on ghost nets or, um, you know, CBIN data or some beach cleanup data from Cleanup Australia or from design surveys or whatnot to start to put that together because the government is now asking for that. And I realize it feels really slow and really late to many um, at the same time, we are seeing an increase in the appetite at the federal, at the state, at the local level for that. So, you know, to me, we want to keep opening doors, keep talking, keep collaborating, because I really do believe that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And what we can do together is going to be much stronger than what each and any of us can do independently and on our own. So over to the other panelists to you know add to that. Hey, the other half of the question I can answer that one is I saw the futility of myself just asking for change as one person. And so I figured if I can get a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand people asking the same thing, then you can't ignore it uh, because people vote. So uh, we actively build communities uh, in real life and online, social media. I got a Australian Ethical sent me an email yesterday. We need a thousand people to fill out a form to tell James Griffin we want to save koalas, blah, blah, blah. You got a thousand people going at a politician just before an election. You have to, you have to, you know, uh, react or do something. And so, uh, we activate communities. We help them build a bit of purpose. Say we have a citizen science, but we also want you to throw out a hashtag or something every now and then. And you can't ignore thousands or hundreds of people uh, if you're a politician because you want to stay in power. You want to keep your seat. You want to keep paying off your multiple mortgages if you have them, you know. Uh, so you, you, you can't ignore the masses. On the topic of data, Graham, I know you, the Sea Shepherd Australia, collect a whole bunch of data in relation to all your various cleanups around the country. What are you finding? What are the key trends that, from the data that you, you're collecting from your, obviously you do your remote cleanups, but I'm more thinking about your sort of, you know, urbanised, you know, densely populated areas. What are, you, what are the key things that you're finding? Yeah, I guess the key thing we're finding is still single-use plastics. You know, cigarette butts play a massive issue um, in the role. We, we're not seeing any reduction in that. Container deposit scheme, I was looking at that. We have seen a huge reduction, and I think it's now 40% is collected by the container deposit scheme. So that those sort of initiatives are working. So it'd be great to see those sort of initiatives around cigarette butts or other, other products as part of the solution. So we're still seeing bottle caps. I, I did a cleanup last weekend. We're looking at bottle caps, single-use plastic, but so much plastic wrap. 
Um, I guess that's a big thing is this fine film plastic that's used in food packaging and all those sort of items that is just keeps coming and keeps coming. No matter where we go, we find these issues. And, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing more and more with the remotes is the, the forcing of single use packaging into poorer countries, um, such as Asia, where they've got, you know, single use shampoo containers. So instead of, a container that might have, I don't know, don't wash my hair, don't have long hair like Brad. Um, so, you know, I don't know how many shampoos you get out of a container, but, you know, say that container holds 60 hair washes. Now there's 60 sing- single-use sachets and we're finding those on the beaches washed up. And this is multi-layered plastic, you know, so it's hard to recycle and you've just got thousands of those littering the beach. We're over in Cocos, I think, in November, Cocos Keeling Island, and we're just seeing that and single-use cups just covering the beach. You could not see the beach. And even at these remote locations we're now to the point when we went back to jewel pond last year we're removing it now with shovels you know we've never had to do that at jewel pond to go in there and shovel this plastic on and the effect that has on people and community is just shocking so we're just seeing you know and and there is a big focus on ghost nets and ghost gear and i guess it's a bit sexy and it draws media attention but it is the single-use plastics and the consumer plastics that are washed over that location that is the real concern you know there, there is the concern with ghost nets we do find it unfortunately with you know when it's washed up with turtle bones or bones and remnants of animals that draw in more animals and more animals all trapped that get washed up and and are deceased when we find them but that consumer plastic is just off the charts so whatever we can do to start turning the focus back on producers and make them pay the two true cost to clean it is where we need to move you know they need to be responsible they're making all this money and just walking away and saying oh it's because everyday australians are littering it's not because of us it's because we're having this plastic forced onto us we don't have options as consumers i don't know about everybody else i live in logan um which is not a lot of money we don't have you know bulk food stores we just shop at coles and Woolworths. so we walk in there and every item we go to pick up is wrapped in plastic We've had enough. We don't want to see that anymore. We want to see options and we want to see the producers paying the cost of cleanup because if they're paying and shelling out money for the cost of cleanup, then they'll come up with smarter design. They'll come up with true products that are reusable and options for us to go and refill our containers at the supermarkets. And, you know, we want to put ourselves out of business. Sea Shepherd is in the, uh, in the model. We don't rely on funding or anything. We're all supported by our supporters through t-shirts and sponsorship. Um, so we want to put ourselves out of business and no longer be in this space and go back to focusing on saving animals. But it, my job at the moment is to focus on drawing attention and doing as much as we can to help, you know, remote communities and get people involved. Um- Legend. And look, Sea Shepherd Australia, full respect. And I say this every time I see you, Graham. You guys do a wonderful job. So I keep up the great work. Anita. I just had one more thing to say to add to that. I think one of the biggest issues that we've been facing is the disconnect between the issues for the public. They don't, once it's gone, they don't think about it anymore. And as Dr. Charlene was saying, it, it affects animals, but it actually affects us as well. Uh, they say that we're ingesting a credit card's worth of plastic a week, and it's even been found in placentas in unborn babies. And the, there's some big announcements coming out later this year about the actual impact on human health and I feel like hopefully that will actually give people a bit of a kick in the backside to actually want to make a bit more of a difference. If there's anyone who does know anything more about that health, we'd love to hear about it, but I know we also are in a bit of a 
rush to move on. Oh, no, no. I love that question about human health. Jeremy and myself asked that question and we have asked it on on a few occasions to Charlene. And this is the question I had, maybe Charlene or Denise, is the ingestion of microplastics a human health problem? So we know it's definitely happening. We've found microplastics in human feces, human blood, and in the placenta as well. So we know that we have microplastics inside of us. They're coming from a range of sources. So we've already discussed how if you're eating a whole animal, not not a fish, because you usually take the guts out, but if you're eating a shrimp and you're not deveining your shrimp, or if you're eating an oyster, you're eating the intestines. So any ocean animal that's those animals that have eaten microplastics, you'll eat those microplastics because you eat the whole animal. But we also get microplastics from literally any plastic item that touches your food or drink in the way it's manufactured or cooked. So all plastic fragments into microplastics. They've found that kitchen sponges, which are plastic, deposit microplastics on the plate. Opening a plastic chip packet creates microplastics that fall into the packet and then you eat them. So we're getting microplastics from all sorts of places. Some of them are ocean animals that we eat, but also some are just from the plastics that we have in our food chain. And until we have materials that replace those plastics, it's hard to see a way that you could take that source out of the diet. We don't quite know yet. It sounds like you might know something, but we don't quite know yet what the effect is on humans because human research is always a lot slower than animal research. But I don't see a reason why what happens in an animal that eats microplastics would not also happen in a human that eats microplastics. So whether there's a cause for concern there, we still haven't got the science, but we definitely know that we're full of plastic. We just have, Denise, do you want to follow on from that? Well, we're actually not eating a credit card worth of plastic every week, though, folks, just to be clear on that. I realize it's a factoid that came out. It's not peer reviewed. If you actually talk to the people who wrote the publication um, for WWF. Um, so we do end up with some of these really shocking headlines that when you actually unpack and look under it, they might not be quite as accurate. And as has been highlighted, we're, it's safe to operate from the precautionary principle for these matters. Um, presence does not equal harm. So we cannot say that because we you know, we, whatever we organism are, that that actually does result in harm. However, um, we don't want to be eating it. And it's, where are you going to get a population of humans that have not had any mm. interaction with plastic to actually do a true control? It's, it's not possible in today's world, you know, and there's so many factors. Are you ingesting it through your nostrils? Are you eating it? You know, where and how are we getting that plastic in us affects the way that our bodies are going to respond to it. And, you know, there is a new lab at UQ that's looking at, you know, trying to be very, very clean. But again, they're able to look at the presence. So looking at the impact is really, really difficult mm. for obvious reasons. At the same time, you know, again, like, we don't want to be eating it. We don't yep. want it everywhere. It's a safe bet to operate from that. Thank you. Trust a scientist to ruin a perfectly good clickbait news article. <laughs> um, look, thank you so much for your time today, guys. A round of applause for my wonderful panelists. Thanks, guys. Again, guys, hope you enjoyed that uh, first of our four-part series. Next episode will feature part two from the Ocean Plastic Action Forum. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. 
If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.